This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. November 5th, 1913, was a beautiful day in Ashtabula, Ohio. A crisp afternoon breeze out of the southeast unfurled the flags over the port on Lake Erie. The enormous steam freighters pulled at their mooring lines along the loading docks. With the golden sunshine on his face, engineer Milton Smith looked over the deck of the SS Charles S. Price, where he had worked for the past eight months. The massive ship was about to head up through the Great Lakes with a load of coal. The return trip would be the last of the year before the ship was put in dry dock for the winter. But Milton had a bad feeling about the coming voyage that he couldn't ignore anymore. Although the weather was warm and clear, winter was coming on fast. Sailing the Great Lakes in bad weather could be deadly, and Milton wasn't willing to put his life at risk. The engineer climbed the deck stairs up to the pilot house, where Captain William Black had a small private cabin. The captain knew what was coming. He asked Milton to reconsider his decision to leave. But Milton refused to change his mind. He slung his duffel over his shoulder and bid Captain Black farewell. He simply couldn't stay on the ship any longer. Milton disembarked and returned to his home in Michigan to wait out the winter. That decision saved his life. In less than a week, his former crew would all be dead. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first of two episodes on the Great Lakes Storm of November 1913, better known as the Freshwater Fury. 
Over the course of four days, this fatal inland cyclone wreaked havoc on four of the five Great Lakes and battered the city of Cleveland in a record-setting blizzard. This week, we'll hear about the unique weather phenomena that combined to create a perfect storm over Lake Superior. We'll also follow the burgeoning U.S. Weather Service as it desperately tries to warn the storm's unprepared victims. Next week, we'll follow the cyclone as it batters Cleveland and threatens dozens of ships trapped on the lakes. We'll also examine the lasting changes the storm brought to shipping and emergency services along the Great Lakes. About 14,000 years ago, retreating glaciers carved the Great Lakes out of North America's center. Together, the lakes cover 94,000 square miles and form the largest reservoir in the world, containing about 20% of all the planet's fresh water. The six quadrillion gallons held in the lakes could cover every inch of North America's landmass in nine and a half feet of water. From west to east, the Great Lakes' names are Superior, Huron, Michigan, Erie, and Ontario. Connected by large rivers, they create an unbroken chain of navigable water from the middle of North America to the Atlantic Ocean. This long chain of lakes and rivers was vital to the European exploration of North America. They formed an unbroken passage for shipping, which allowed access to the extensive natural resources in the heart of the continent. But navigating by boat on the Great Lakes has always been a dangerous gamble against nature. The unpredictable winds can spawn tempests and waves that are as severe as ocean storms. Because freshwater is often warmer and evaporates faster than saltwater, storms strike more rapidly over lakes than they do over the ocean. Sometimes inland cyclones can build in less than 24 hours. This is like a hurricane forming out of a bluebird sky and striking Florida in a single day. In the course of three centuries of commercial shipping in North America, over 6,000 ships have been lost on the Great Lakes. In fact, the first ship to ever carry cargo on the Great Lakes was sunk in a sudden storm. In the spring of 1679, French explorer René Robert de La Salle built the first vessel to traverse the Great Lakes. While the indigenous tribes had long used canoes along the shores, La Salle believed a European-style ship could easily handle crossing the waters, even if it were built at a smaller scale. His ship was called Le Griffon. It carried fur trappers from the wilderness on western Lake Michigan to an outpost on the eastern shores of Lake Erie. On September 18, 1679, La Salle watched the Griffon depart what is now Green Bay, Wisconsin, to head up and around Michigan to the east. La Salle felt no need to accompany his flagship on such a routine journey. Not long after the Griffon's departure, a violent storm came up on Lake Huron. The ship disappeared with no survivors. The Great Lakes had claimed their first victim. More ships would meet a similar end over the next 250 years, but Great Lakes shipping was the region's economic lifeblood. Sailors had to swallow their fear and continue their voyages across the massive inland seas. By November of 1913, 
the Great Lakes' tempestuous nature was well-documented. Sailors knew that the nearly 350-mile expanse of Lake Superior could spawn huge, nearly three-story waves. On Lake Huron and Michigan, ships might encounter sudden squalls with winds over 75 miles per hour. Freighter captains formed unique instincts and superstitions about squalls based on their extensive experience. For years, these superstitions were all they had to ensure their safety. By 1913, the storms were largely a scientific mystery. At the time, meteorology was a still-developing field. Weather data was based on piecemeal regional reports sent by telegraph to the Weather Bureau headquarters in Washington, D.C., where it was compiled into a hand-drawn national map. To ensure the most accuracy possible, weather stations across the country had to synchronize their reports. They had to be transmitted at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. daily, Washington time. So a weatherman in Duluth, Minnesota, had to take his measurement at 6.52 a.m. local time to ensure it matched all the others from around the nation. Thus, a meteorologist like 46-year-old William H. Alexander was more of an artist than a scientist. Alexander was assigned to the Weather Bureau station in Cleveland, Ohio, on the southern shore of Lake Erie. His job was to read the barometer on-site, telegraph the data to Washington, and wait to receive the compiled national report. Then, he would create pencil sketches of the weather patterns on his regional map, hopefully providing an accurate picture of the weather heading his way. Only then would Alexander be able to make a prediction. The tedious nature of weather reporting meant that these pictures were often hours out of date. Forecasts were unreliable, and in the case of the Great Lakes region, entire storms could form in the 12-hour window between the national reports at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Still, on November 5, 1913, Alexander dutifully sent his report at 7.40 a.m. local time to synchronize with Washington, D.C. and build his weather forecast. Later that morning, he received the national data from Washington and plotted his weather map for the day. Temperatures were in the 50s and winds were calm. Alexander saw that it would be at least another 36 hours before temperatures might drop. He sent his map to the local printer for distribution to the newspapers and shipping companies. Farmers and captains were the primary audience for weather reports. Even an uncertain forecast might save lives on the water. Early November was the end of the shipping season on the lakes. In the second week of the month, a few daredevil captains took their ships for one last run from Duluth to Lake Erie. But the danger grew exponentially as the month wore on. Still, with warm, mild weather, more freighters would be out on the lakes than normal to make their last trips of the year. These round trips hauled vital resources for the industries along the lakes, so each journey was maximized for profit. Ships carrying iron ore from the shores of Lake Superior would head southeast to Ashtabula, Ohio, a major port on Lake Erie. On the return voyage, the ships would load up with coal and head northwest back through Lake Huron towards Lake Superior. This way, the ships were making money for their captains on both legs of the journey. After all, a ship only made a profit by offsetting the cost of crew, fuel, and maintenance. An empty ship meant an empty wallet. This mentality was reflected in the design of the cargo ships on the lakes. 
Great Lakes freighters were purpose-built to carry as much ore as possible. Essentially, they resembled motorized boxes with a point on one end and a propeller on the other. This design has changed little since the first decade of the 20th century, when around half of all the ships built in America were for Great Lakes shipping. But in 1913, these steel hull freighters were a relatively new sight between Lake Superior and Lake Erie. Wooden hulls had long been the primary type of boat along the lakes. The new steel ships were considered a modern marvel. These freighters were hailed as having the newest technological advances in shipbuilding. Electric lights, hot water showers, and flush toilets were standard on the new ships in an era when most American households still used oil lamps and outhouses. Many sailors believed these new steel hulls were impenetrable and far safer than wooden boats. On a calm day, captains at the helm of a heavy, fully loaded freighter could hardly even feel the waves. But the long, rigid hulls did not handle well in heavy seas. The lake's sudden storms still posed a serious threat. But as the old saying went, ships weren't built to stay in their harbors. When the weather was warm, freighter captains saw dollar signs. Captain William Black was no exception. He was the master of the Charles S. Price, a 504-foot coal freighter. The Price was one of the newest ships on the Great Lakes, having only been built in 1910. On November 5th, Captain Black and his 27 crew members loaded their coal from Ashtabula, Ohio. There should have been 28. Assistant engineer Milton Smith had disembarked that morning, citing a bad feeling about the trip. But Captain Black was unfazed by Milton's shaky nerves. He trusted his shiny new ship to carry his cargo and crew safely home. As the Charles S. Price steamed across Lake Erie early the next morning, a telegraph message arrived from William Alexander's Weather Bureau office in Cleveland. It was a small craft advisory for the Lower Great Lakes for all of November 6th. This was the lowest level storm warning, though it still meant that the winds and waves would be strong enough to threaten the stability of boats under 65 feet long. But the Charles Price was a monstrosity, comprised of over 500 feet of stable steel. Captain Black didn't worry about the small craft warning, nor did most other freighter captains steaming out that day. They believed their ships were impervious to such mild weather. Little did they know, their ignorance would lead to catastrophe. This mild weather was about to become the worst cyclone in Great Lakes history. We'll hear about the first signs of the coming storm right after this. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. It was 10 a.m. on November 7, 1913, and Weather Bureau Chief William Alexander was hoisting a peculiar flag above his office in Cleveland, Ohio. 
The wind was picking up, and Alexander shivered as he pulled the flag up the pole, but it wasn't from the cold. He was afraid of the weather forecast for the Great Lakes. The signal flag was an eight-foot square red pennant with a black circle in the middle. According to the official 1913 Weather Bureau signals book, it meant that the Bureau was forecasting a storm of marked violence. The mild winds that had been predicted the day before were swelling into a tempest. Alexander was monitoring his telegraph for more updates, but so far the prediction was grim. All of the 112 Weather Bureau stations in the Great Lakes region had received the same forecast and signal orders from Washington. A cold front was blowing down from Canada over Lake Superior. Winds over 55 miles per hour were expected. Superior was the westernmost lake in the chain and the largest by far, but the news spread quickly across the other four lakes. A storm was coming on from the west and fast. Alexander telegraphed the warning to every ship with a wireless radio, but in 1913, many of the freighters still didn't have one. He resorted to calling the local offices of several major shipping companies and warning them directly. Unfortunately, many ships were too far out on the lakes to be reached. Meanwhile, 850 miles to the northwest, a 472-foot freighter, the L.C. Waldo, was steaming out from Two Harbors, Minnesota with its cargo of rusty red iron ore. The ship was already rocking as it churned through Lake Superior, angling against a strong north wind. The Waldo was heading east, and its commander, Captain John Duddleston, wanted to get past Michigan's Upper Peninsula before the weather got worse. Unfortunately, as he eyed the falling barometer and felt the wind, he knew they didn't have long before the low-pressure front swirled into a full-blown storm. Low-pressure systems are a harbinger of bad weather. Low-pressure air tends to be warmer and rise higher into the atmosphere. Warm air can hold more water vapor than cold air, and more water vapor means more clouds. And clouds bring rain and storms. In the autumn and winter over the Great Lakes, cold Arctic air meets hot tropical air on its way up from the equator. This sharp contrast in temperature triggers strong wind along the dividing line where warm low pressure meets cold high pressure air. Add the warm lake waters evaporating into the spinning air currents and you have a deadly November storm over the Great Lakes. This process is what William Alexander was able to see from Lake Erie with his regional network of observer reports and what Captain Duddleston was witnessing firsthand on the deck of the L.C. Waldo on Lake Superior. Then, at 5 p.m. on November 6th, a blast of cold wind came pouring out of the atmosphere above Duluth, Minnesota at over 60 miles per hour. The city was built below a ridge of bluffs overlooking the wide, protected harbor below. The gale blew down the hillside into the streets and blasted away fences, storefront signs, billboards, and trash. A newsstand tipped over entirely, scattering hundreds of newspapers across a main thoroughfare. Up the street from the destroyed newsstand, the front window of a Chinese restaurant shattered into the dining room as terrified diners scattered. At the waterfront, 
An iron steam boiler shook on its foundations at the C. Rice Coal Company's number three dock. Its door cracked open and spilled hot coals across the timber dock planks. The wind quickly fanned the embers into flames until the whole dock was ablaze. A few miles across the harbor, the gale force blast tore three coal-loading cranes out of their docks. The terrible winds were clocked at 68 miles per hour as they hurtled across Lake Superior. By the time the storm reached the L.C. Waldo, 150 miles out in the middle of the lake, it had turned into a blizzard. The driving snow swirled around the Waldo's pilot house as it headed around the upper peninsula of Michigan. The first mate, a man named Kiefer, was at the wheel with Captain Duddleston around midnight. The rest of the crew was in the rear section of the ship, either asleep or finishing dinner. The visibility dropped to less than a quarter mile as a blizzard settled around the ship. Captain Duddleston and Kiefer would have to navigate the peninsula almost blind. Meanwhile, the southern edge of the storm was just reaching Lake Michigan on the evening of the 6th. Many boats were still on the water that evening, including a 287-foot wooden steamer named Louisiana. The ship was over 25 years old and was a familiar workhorse at the ports along the Great Lakes. The Louisiana had just finished a run with a cargo of coal from Cleveland to Milwaukee on Lake Michigan's southwest shore. Now she was headed back north to the iron town of Escanaba, Michigan, tucked into Green Bay 200 miles up the western shore. A little before midnight, the Louisiana turned into the entrance of Green Bay from the lake. This passage was known as Death's Door, an unfair name for a stretch of water that is usually wide and calm. But that night, it lived up to its ominous moniker. At 12.15 a.m., Finley McLean, the first mate of the Louisiana, reported that the brisk wind died out almost completely, but in less than half an hour, we were fighting for our lives in a 55-mile-an-hour gale that tore upon us from the Northwest. Soon, the wind and waves were too much for the wooden ship's single engine. The Louisiana was being blown backwards, back out into the lake, even with the propeller churning at full speed. Captain Fred McDonald gave the order to drop anchor in a desperate attempt to hold the ship in place and ride out the storm. If they were blown out into the middle of Lake Michigan, they would have no protection from the cyclonic winds and rising waves. The closer they could stay to the safety of the bay, the better chance they had to keep the ship afloat. But it didn't work. The anchor dragged along the bottom, unable to stop the Louisiana from being blown out of control. Now, the ship was drifting toward the rocky shoreline on the wrong side of the peninsula. First Mate McLean said, By 1 a.m., the wind had increased to 70 miles an hour, and we were really scared. We were fighting, helpless to keep off the beach. We just couldn't do a damn thing. A little after 2 a.m., the sound of cracking timber filled the ship as the hull slammed into the rugged shoreline of an island at the bay's mouth. 
the ship was firmly jammed onto the rocks. Freezing lake water rushed into the Louisiana's hull as the crew frantically tried to stay dry. If one of them fell into the water, they could die of hypothermia. Then, an hour later, one of the crewmen smelled smoke. McLean said, How it happened, we never knew for certain, but the old Louisiana caught fire. Probably the wrecked engines, but we had no chance to find out. The old wood craft burned like tinder. Fighting the blaze was hopeless. Hot coals had likely burst out of the shattered steam boiler deep in the rocking wooden ship. The crew had to choose between possibly freezing to death in the massive waves or burning to death in an inferno. The shoreline was almost 50 yards away, but they would have to make a break for it. The terrified men managed to get a lifeboat into the huge crashing waves and pile inside. The lifeboat almost capsized, filling with water as the crew bailed and paddled towards shore. The floundering boat eventually hit the beach and the soaked freezing crew watched as the Louisiana burned down to the waterline. Its old wooden hull went up in flames in less than 15 minutes. By the time the fire was over, the crew could only see the big iron engine. McLean would remember that sight vividly. He later said, she burned clear to the water. There was nothing left of her but the red hot engine, which hissed like a volcano and set off clouds of steam as the seas rushed over it. Dawn was still over an hour away as the crew of the destroyed Louisiana huddled in the cold darkness along the rocky shore of Lake Michigan. Although they had escaped the ship, they were a long way from safety. Meanwhile, the crew on the much larger, metal-hulled L.C. Waldo slept warmly in their bunks as the ship plowed through the frothing waves of Lake Superior to the north. But while the other men slept, Captain Duddleston, First Mate Charles Kiefer, and helmsman Bernard Foley were in the pilot house, fighting to keep the ship steady. By 2 a.m., they were about 40 miles off of the Keweenaw Peninsula, Michigan's northernmost point, the wind gusts topped 70 miles per hour, and the windows of the pilot house were caked in thick ice. Wet snow swirled around the ship, blocking any view of the surrounding seas. The visibility was so bad that the three men couldn't even see the stern of the ship from the bow. The 20-foot waves piled against the ship, tossing it about. Then the ship plowed through two giant waves back to back. Not long after, Captain Duddleston heard the horrific sound of a third wave as it crashed over the ship. The Waldo had been struck by one of Lake Superior's notorious rogue waves. The immense size and unbroken length of Lake Superior allows much bigger wind-driven waves to form than would be expected on most lakes. Over the 350 miles of open water, the wind can build waves 30 feet high. Much of the lakeshore is vertical, jagged cliffs that reflect the wave energy back into the lake, instead of breaking it on a gentle beach. When a 30-foot wave hits a cliff and is reflected back into the lake, enough energy is stored in the huge column of water to create another 20-foot wave. 
If this reflected outgoing wave energy is synchronized with a wave coming in from the lake, the two can combine to form a rogue wave over 50 feet high. Due to the physics of wave mechanics, these waves often form in sets of three. Sailors on the Great Lakes call this trio of waves the Three Sisters. Many captains believe the sisters can be three times the size of the waves around them, and the third sister in line is by far the largest. The sound Captain Duddleston heard was the sinister crest of the third sister. This giant wave was likely over 50 feet high. It appeared out of the blinding snow and slammed into the ship's pilot house. The icy windows shattered and the walls cracked and buckled. Freezing water poured in and washed Helmsman Foley out of the broken doorway. He disappeared into the blowing snow on deck. First mate Kiefer dove after his crewmate, desperately reaching through the snow to find a hand, a foot, a clump of fabric, anything to stop Foley from falling overboard. Instead, the helmsman fell onto the icy steel deck. Kiefer found him injured and shivering. He brought Foley back inside the confines of the shattered pilot house, but as the waves crashed over the bow, there was little difference between inside and outside. Kiefer rushed to the helm and tried to turn into the waves to steady the ship. Meanwhile, Captain Duddleston gave him orders to make for the shore. The only goal now was to save the ship by taking shelter on the far side of the peninsula's windbreak. Then Kiefer felt a snap. He spun the wheel, but nothing happened. The ceaseless pounding of the waves had finally broken the Waldo's rudder. They had lost all ability to steer. The Waldo was now completely adrift in the worst storm in Great Lakes history. We'll hear about the impending destruction on the rocky shoreline right after this. Now back to the story. By dawn on November 8, 1913, an inland cyclone with sustained winds of over 60 miles per hour had settled over Lake Superior and Lake Michigan. The blasting Arctic wind churned the big lakes into frothing waves of kinetic energy that tossed around huge steel freighters like toy boats in a bathtub. In Cleveland, Weather Bureau Chief William Alexander looked at the forecast from Washington around 9 a.m. Another low-pressure system was approaching from the south. When that system collided with the storm raging over Superior, the two systems would feed off of each other and create a meteorological bomb over Lake Huron. As Alexander drew his weather map for the daily newspapers, he knew it was not a question of if, but when. The two storms were undoubtedly going to collide sometime in the next 24 hours. Alexander tore his gaze away from the data in front of him and looked outside. It was beginning to snow in Cleveland. It wouldn't stop for another two days. While Alexander was worried about the snow in Cleveland, the crew of the ore freighter L.C. Waldo were fighting for their lives in the blizzard on Lake Superior. The Waldo had lost its rudder a little after 3 a.m., and now, seven hours later, the ship was being inexorably pushed towards the rocky shoreline of Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula. 
their lifeboat had been washed away. The crew was quickly losing hope. Captain Duddleston knew there was no way to round the peninsula to the calmer east side, where the land would offer some protection from the wind. As he huddled over a tiny compass, he watched the ship drift closer and closer to Gull Rock, a huge protrusion just off the peninsula's shoreline. He looked over at his second mate and said, My God, Mr. Feeger, we're goners. The men fled the destroyed pilot house and headed for the stern to join the rest of the crew. Every wave brought a blast of icy lake water over the pair as they crossed the open deck. But there was no time to rest. With a jolting scrape, the Waldo finally ran aground on Gull Rock in the early afternoon on Saturday. The ship was stuck fast on the rocks, but they were still several hundred yards from dry land. In only a few hours, the ship would be pelted with 30-foot waves and 60-mile-an-hour winds until it broke apart. The crew was trapped, and then the hull began to make a series of startling creaking and cracking noises as the waves hit the ship. They were sounds no sailor wanted to hear. While the bow was stuck on the rocks, the stern of the ship was still bobbing in the lake. Now it was coming apart under the onslaught of the storm. The chief engineer, Al Hack, went to the captain with his startling assessment. He said, we couldn't stay at the stern. We should move forward because the hull was beginning to break up. We'd have a better chance in the bow. But the only way to reach the bow of the Waldo now was to cross the icy steel deck it was a 300-foot gauntlet of freezing snow and wind. The waves sloshed over the deck, threatening to wash away anyone not holding fast. The steward's wife, Joan, and her mother, Alma, had joined the Waldo on its journey. They were terrified to make the trip across the deck. Their large, fabric-laden dresses would have been considered fashionable, but now they seemed like a death sentence. As their clothes became waterlogged, the freezing women refused to move. Joan and Alma watched as the rest of the 20-man crew continued across the slick deck in small groups of two or three. An icy steel cable ran the length of the deck, providing the only handhold as everyone crawled towards the relative safety of the bow. It took a full half hour to traverse the 300 feet. Finally, the two women gathered the courage to cross the deck. The first mate, Kiefer, was supporting Alma on the cable when a particularly large wave plowed into the Waldo's trapped hull. The entire ship shook, and Alma screamed as the wave pinned her against the cable. The water also slammed Kiefer to the deck, knocking the breath out of him. Then he lost his grip on Alma. She slid towards the edge of the deck, and Kiefer reached out, grabbing a swath of fabric and clutching tight. Several crew members, watching the drama unfold from the bow, rushed onto the icy deck to help Kiefer pull the woman back from the raging lake. Their heroics came just in time. As the group reached the bow, a deafening crack echoed over the pounding waves. The crew looked back towards the stern and watched the entire back half of the Waldo lift up into the air. Then they heard another series of cracks as the steel hull broke in two. The rear half of the ship fell back into the pounding surf. 
The crew huddled in the wrecked captain's quarters in the bow, which was still firmly wedged on the rocks. They watched in terror as the stern disappeared into the driving snow and settled beneath the churning black water. Then they turned to the problem of surviving the rest of the storm in their shipwreck. Everyone was soaked to the bone and they were freezing. The threat of hypothermia loomed with the single-digit temperatures along the lakeshore. They needed to get warm fast or they were all dead. As the sun set, the crew of the Waldo huddled around Captain Duddleston's bathtub below deck, which they had turned into a makeshift fireplace while they waited for the storm to subside. Meanwhile, about 200 miles to the south, the crew of the wooden steamer Louisiana had given up waiting for rescue. They abandoned the scant remains of their burned ship and hiked inland. They found snowdrifts up to several feet deep and more snow was falling. Two men served as trail breakers, tamping down the snow to form a trail. It was exhausting work. But it paid off. After an arduous five-mile trek, the crew came upon an inhabited farmhouse. The two dozen men crammed in with the family and rode out the rest of the storm in front of the fire with a hot, home-cooked meal. However, they were an exception. While the snow began to let up overnight as the storm left Lake Superior, it was still growing as it roared east over Lake Michigan. The eastern Great Lakes, Huron and Erie, were still in its path along with dozens of ships. Hundreds of unsuspecting sailors were still unaware of the atmospheric beast bearing down on them. Then, around 7 a.m. on Sunday, November 9th, the low pressure front from Appalachia slammed into the storm. It was like throwing gasoline on a fire. The wind speeds increased to almost 90 miles an hour as the storm barreled towards Lake Huron, heading for Cleveland and over 20 ships steaming north into the heart of the cyclone. By the end of the day, 12 of them would be at the bottom of the lake, with another 250 sailors missing or dead. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. For more information on the 1913 Great Lakes storm, amongst the many sources we used, we found White Hurricane by David G. Brown extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll follow the action as the Great Lakes storm slams into Cleveland and wreaks havoc on Lake Huron. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Juan Borda. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. Thank you.